Hello, and welcome to A New Legacy. I'm Jess Nickel, and I'm here with my sister, Annie. And in this episode, we are proud to be featuring a conversation with Tanish Hollins. The reason we picked her as our first conversation is because Tanish is a powerful leader who has been doing grassroots organizing for her entire life to support the people in her community who have needed it most. Yeah, Tanish is exactly who we want people to listen to and be guided by in many of the very challenging issues we're going to be talking about on this podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, in this conversation, we'll be discussing the need for community-based programs for kids and non-punitive approaches to supporting schools and communities, as well as her journey of redefining justice and healing for survivors and the folks most impacted by incarceration. You know, I think we were both really in a place of kind of listening and taking in her wisdom in this conversation mm-hmm. because her her message is just so rich and important. And I know it's had a really lasting impact on us both. Yeah. So before we dive in, will you read her bio, Jess? She's just done so many amazing things. Yes. So a crime survivor and a native of San Francisco, Tanish is the executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice, which is the Alliance for Safety and Justice's flagship state-based program. Tanish previously served for two years as CSJ's associate director, as well as the California state director of Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice, after starting with the organization as the Bay Area chapter coordinator of CSSJ. Her leadership helped to pass historic first-in-the-nation legislation that extended employment leave for all survivors of violence, as well as legislation permitting crime victims to terminate their leases if they no longer feel safe in their homes following a crime. Tanish also played a pivotal leadership role in the defeat of Proposition 20, a regressive ballot measure on the 2020 California ballot that sought to repeal numerous successful criminal justice reforms. She has been deeply engaged in the Bay Area social justice movement as a community organizer, policy advocate, and systems navigator for nearly two decades. Tanish has worked passionately to bring the voices of survivors to the center of community engagement and public policy, and has advocated tirelessly for those voices to guide decisions, priorities, and resources. Prior to joining CSJ in 2019, Tanish served in various leadership capacities in local government, including at the San Francisco Human Services Agency and in the San Francisco Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. Tanish, thank you so much for being willing to speak with us today. We met very briefly on a call like some months ago, and I remember that your compassion and kindness on that call made a really lasting impression on me and on on both of us. And so... We've been really looking forward to this conversation. And Your name just comes up. I don't know if at least I weekly, know. like, oh, Tanish, Tan- like, <laughs> like <laughs> this woman, we have to talk to this woman. <laughs> totally. And I know this is a really intense week. You know, the week when we're recording this conversation is the same week that we saw a guilty verdict delivered to Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, which happened within the same hour as another police killing of a 16-year-old girl. And It's also National Crime Survivors Week, which I know is huge for you in CSJ. So before we dive in, I just wanted to see, how are you? How are you doing? (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm I'm just really grateful to have this time with you all. I just respect um, your voice and you sharing your story so publicly with all of us and community as survivors. It really means a lot. And yeah, this week has been a lot. 
you know, moments of encouragement and then unfortunately followed by moments of rage and despair, um, but still hope underneath all of it. And that's what I'm holding on to. I think that's what this weekend is about. Survivors speak and pulling all of our survivors together across the country for a moment of healing, but also to focus on the ways that we've turned our pain into power. So hopeful and encouraged in the midst of all this. I guess, you know, an obvious first question to ask would just be like, what brought you to this work and what meaning does it hold for you? Yeah, so my my journey into this work started um, when I was young. And I actually had no idea what I was doing, but I am what they would call a community organizer. I became what they call a community organizer. I had no idea that's what I was doing at the time. You know, I grew up in Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco, which is, you know, a neighborhood that uh, rings bells like South Central Los Angeles or Chicago. Beautiful communities, predominantly Black folks and folks of color. And unfortunately, you know, communities that also experienced high rates of violence and other disparities. So I grew up holding those two truths, just looking at my community and knowing how beautiful it it was and many times how I felt safer in my community than anywhere else, but also having moments where I felt unsafe and unfortunately seeing a lot of really terrible things happen, you know, people losing their lives to violence. When I saw systems interacting with my family and with community, that there was this assumption that no one cared about safety, no one cared about well-being, no one cared about health or education. And I just knew that was wrong. I knew that was that I knew that was wrong, that that assumption was wrong, and that I also understood that a lot of what I saw happening uh, was happening because people wanted to be safe. People wanted access to help and support that they just weren't getting. And so a lot of the solutions that were being imposed on us were solutions that were actually harmful. They were punitive. All the issues that I saw happening around us were being responded to um, with harsh punishments. You know, if your kids are not going to school, you're going to, we're going to send a truancy officer, you know, and the parents will be penalized. Issues with housing, you're going to be evicted from your housing. Issues in school, you're going to be put out of school or, you know, placed in detention or suspension. And I just saw that pattern. Like, why is every, the response to every problem punitive? You know, it, it's it's a penalty. So I spoke up about that and I thought it was important to bring the voices of the people that were experiencing these problems and these issues into the conversation about what to do about it. So now you're the executive director of CSJ. <laughs> From that to this. <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, lots of lots of twists and turns on that journey from, from being a, you know, a young teenager speaking out against the police or speaking to the police or speaking to, you know, elected officials, mayors, folks who came into my community. Um, and now leading CSJ is, is a huge honor. It also feels like, you know, the right place to be, especially in this moment. There's so much that um, folks don't understand about criminal justice reform and what it really means. You know, I think that they often get triggered when they hear these phrases and believe that what we're saying is we don't want accountability, that people should get away with certain things. Um, and that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we have pumped billions of dollars into a system that has failed us. It's failed to keep us safe. It's failed to address the root causes of the problems that we are all experiencing and being impacted by and that we have to take a different approach and one that 
allows us to address the root of the problem, but also free up resources so that we can have responses that are more comprehensive. You can't incarcerate our way into safety. We've proven it. It's been decades. It won't happen. And I think in California, we've come a long way. You know, that's been evident by the way that folks have voted over the past couple of years, voting in big reforms like Prop 47, Prop 57, and last year defeating Proposition 20. And that was in defense of the work that has been done through those other state ballot initiatives to do exactly what I said, you know, which is reduce our reliance on systems that haven't worked and reinvest those dollars into things that actually do prevent the cycle of crime in our communities. In terms of um, the way that resources can be redirected back into communities for prevention um, and for support, one of the themes that we've seen in our conversations with other survivors is the importance of that, of those programs, you know, obviously mental health services, but even just after school programs, sports, places where people can go if they want to be safe or want to have community. And I I was wondering if there are any programs like that that really stand out to you that you've seen be particularly impactful. I think it's just really great to bring more and more of those kinds of examples out so that people can picture them really clearly. Oh, yeah. Tons of them. I mean, I grew up in them in my community. Uh, I work with them and partner with them outside of CSJ every day. The ones that I believe have the most impact are those who are led by survivors and people who are directly impacted by the issues that they're working on. So we have amazing organizations in, you know, throughout California, but, you know, I'm from San Francisco, so I'm always thinking about the folks that are closest to the ground here. And we have organizations like Inner City Youth, Southwest Development Corporation, which is doing amazing work with seniors and families in in OMI. We have the San Francisco Rebels and San Francisco Brown Bombers, which have almost three decades now been working directly with young people, getting them into sports and supporting them academically and giving them access and opportunities to college. You know, many survivor-led organizations were actually launching an initiative to provide some support to organizations that are led by crime survivors so they can provide direct cash assistance to crime victims in their community. And that's huge. It's huge. You know, but it's another example of how programs and folks on the ground have had to stand in the gap and supplement the areas where systems have failed and not been able to meet the need. You know, I see it happen all the time in other communities when people see an area that they consider to be blight, they get together and they build a community garden. You know, they repurpose the space. Um, They launch businesses. They start organizations and associations. It's not uncommon. But when we do it in our communities, we don't always get the same support and we don't get the same uh, respect, you know, unfortunately. There's this perception that we don't have the expertise or the bandwidth to be able to sustain these things. And the truth is we do them all the time and we do them with very little to no resources. And it's how we keep our communities safe and whole in the midst of all the other challenges and crises that may be happening within and around us. And so I'm just happy to, you know, be able to continue doing that work um, in this capacity. My brothers, they love to dance and they used to dance to get girls. That was their secret. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they, but they didn't want to be known as dancers. They didn't think it was cool enough, um, you know. And in our community, uh, you know, there was a, a lot of pressure, you know, to be a certain way, to be safe. And I wanted them to feel safe and feel cool dancing. 
Um, so I started opening up our garage and inviting their friends in, and we turned it into a violence prevention program. And all of those young people are doing amazing things in the community right now. They've started businesses. They've started their own organizations. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, give people space, you know, give people space and give them the resources to create their solutions. Those are the most impactful. We don't need to create solutions for them. What's challenging for you in, in this work and the work that you do? If anything. <laughs> well. <laughs> How much time you got? <laughs> right. The challenge is defending the changes that we've been able to, to make, the advancements that we've been able to make. It's taking a lot to, in some ways, depoliticize very political issues and bring them down to just human experience, right? Like really humanizing what we see happening and whether or not this is the right way for us to address a problem. You know, we do that in in uh, conversations around legislation. Um, we also do it in community, you know, it, and it's, it's hard work, right? But it's important. And, you know, being able to create opportunities where we're able to share stories, where we really be able to help people see the practical examples of what we're talking about, uh, it makes a difference. It's a lot of work just to bring them back, you know, bring them back to not just this moment, but, you know, where we are in the direction that we're trying to go and get folks to buy in and share some consensus. The, the weight of these issues are not small. We're dealing with racism. We're dealing with um, state section violence. We're dealing with you know, all of these huge issues that have been compounded by so many other things. We're not always going to agree on the solution. Let's at least agree that we have a problem in the way that we've been dealing with it has not worked. Absolutely. In the town hall yesterday, you were talking about two new pieces of legislation, SB 299 and AB 95. And I was wondering if you could just kind of quickly give an overview of what those are and why they're needed. So AB 95 is being authored by Assemblymember Lowe. And what this bill will do, if passed, is it will offer 10 days of uh, protected time off for bereavement for Californians. And a lot of folks don't know. If you're fortunate enough to have an employer that has a policy, you may be, you may be able to take up to three days of bereavement time off. But there is no statute in the state of California to give protected time off for bereavement. And that's not just for survivors. That's for, for any loss, anyone who loses someone. So this bill would allow folks to take 10 days of protected time off from employment to grieve, you know, to plan to be with their families, which is huge. When you layer on someone who has been a victim of a crime or lost a loved one to a, a horrible event, like a homicide, some people have had to go back to work the very next day or three days later or lost their jobs. Many people have lost their jobs. So it's an incredibly important bill. And, you know, also, again, thinking about the impact of COVID-19 and how many lives have been lost um, over this past year. Folks not having time to to take off and grieve or process that loss is going to have a profound impact on people's mental health and ability to navigate their lives. So we're really hoping that that bill continues to 
get traction and uh, passes. The other uh, huge bill is uh, SB 299, and that bill is carried by Senator Leva. And that bill would expand victims' compensation to victims of uh, police violence and surviving family members of officer-involved shootings. It would also remove the reporting requirement that currently exists for victims' compensation which means that these survivors would not have to get a police report in order to substantiate their claim. And and that's incredibly important. What's in the police report often states that this individual was in commission of a crime or that they were fearful that they would commit a crime, and then they are not perceived as a victim. And because they're not perceived as a victim, they automatically lose eligibility. There's more to this about, you know, contact with law enforcement, even for those who have not lost their lives to police violence. Having contact with law enforcement creates a huge barrier to getting access to victims' compensation, as if you can't have both experiences. It's so clear that while accountability is really important, this is a system that's broken. And it's really hard to even imagine what justice could look like. I I don't know that I have an idea of what justice looks like, but I am curious, Tanish, because you've been doing this work for such a long time, if there's an idea that you hold in your mind or in your heart for what justice could be in this country. That is a question that I sit with a lot. And it's hard because justice as it's currently defined is not something that I've ever felt like I've experienced. And many people who look like me have never felt like they've experienced it. And especially not as it relates to the criminal legal system. I think as I grow older and, you know, am processing and healing from my experiences of of loss, losing my brothers and, you know, on a personal end, you know, my family is also having to grapple with how we define justice for for one of those losses. And I think for me personally, real justice would be full circle closure that prevents further harm. It may not repair the loss, replace the loss, but it prevents further harm from happening. And in order to achieve that, we've got to have a very comprehensive full circle view and approach. It cannot be binary. It cannot be based on guilt and innocence. It cannot be, you know, extremely focused on right and wrong or punishment. It has to look at the full picture and restore. And so when I think about, you know, my own family, you know, sending someone to prison for the rest of their lives doesn't achieve that. And unfortunately, neither would revenge. It wouldn't, it wouldn't achieve that either you know, it would continue to perpetuate the harm in one way or another. And so I have not seen the kind of justice that I would like to see um, and like to experience, but I'm hopeful that we can start to get closer to it in my lifetime. And I think that the work that I'm doing and, you know, the work, the courageous work that you all have been doing and raising your voices and helping folks who probably can't even understand how someone who has had a very public loss or a family that's had a very public loss like yours um, would have a different opinion about what justice looks like and, and what's needed to repair harm. We have work to do, you know, to continue that education and to continue to chip away at these old ideologies that 
have not helped us and have for certain had a disproportionate impact, you know, harmful impact on my community, on Black communities, on communities of color. You know, it's important, even though it's going to take a lot more work to get everyone to understand. That feels both like such a beautiful idea of what justice could be, like the um, a full circle that prevents further harm. And it also feels really integral to what I imagine healing looks like for a lot of people. If I'm being really honest, a year ago, I probably uh, would have told you that I didn't really believe in healing or that it was something that wasn't for me, you know, that it was for other people. And I'm in my own process, but I am curious what what healing how that's shown up for you in your life? What experiences have put you on a path of a healing journey? And before actually we go there, I would actually love to ask you, Annie, something around what had you think that it wasn't for you? Like just because you hadn't found something yet or what what had that belief? For me, it felt like the thing that was important was trying to undo the harm. And that's something that I've realized I, you know, can't, I can't do that. Um, what I can do is try to help make things better. What I felt before was more of an immense sense of responsibility. And now I feel a clearer choice in how we can try to make things better. And that feels more like healing um, to me. That healing's even part of that. Yeah. As essential. Right. That we I'm have hearing. to prioritize it in order to do this work. Yeah. I shared some of that with you, Annie, like a, a couple years ago, I didn't have a way to define healing for myself for sure. You know, I felt like my healing was going to come from understanding why. Why did this happen? Why Why my family? Why does it continue to happen? In this journey, I've definitely shifted to thinking more about the how. How does this happen? How does it continue to happen? It's a profound shift in the way you look at it. Because when I started looking at it that way, it required me to go back to some of the harm in a different way. It allowed me to see and understand a lot more of what I experienced, but it also helped me better understand the path through it. You know, so I think a big part of my healing has been coming back to myself and to those experiences and to my community. I've shared many times with folks that when I lost my brothers, I left my community. I felt very betrayed. You know, I'd worked as an organizer, stood in the gap, brought a lot of folks into spaces and into conversations, but I had to deal with that betrayal, you know, and also the challenges that created in my family. Healing is something that I'm constantly defining and redefining for myself. But what I know it now to be is it's impossible to do without looking at the how, and it's impossible to do if you're only isolated on on yourself and what happened to you and what it means for you. It's so amazing, those little shifts. Um, that's something that I'm in the process of kind of discovering for myself too, that there, there's a different way of asking a question that can really change the way that you relate to an entire issue or your understanding or the meaning that you make of a tragedy. I feel like those are the sort of little, the points on the, on the path, you know, that are taking us where we're going. So 
survivors have different experiences, right, around what justice might look like or what their healing process is or what they want in general. And, you know, it seems not so controversial to say that really the people who are most impacted by crime and violence should be the ones whose voices are shaping policy. And yet so many survivors of violent crime, in particular survivors of color, are ignored, you know, in general, or being told that they're somehow not real victims. We're, we'd love to know how does your organization actually manage to invite and integrate so many diverse perspectives from survivors and ensure that everyone is being heard while pursuing, also pursuing a, you know, progressive reform agenda? Like, how, how do you navigate that? Such an easy question, Jess. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just how do you do that? <laughs> Simple. Let me tell you. No. Um, it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, you know, I often say that our not only is our justice system one size fits none, but justice is not narrowly defined, right? Like to your point, we experience all different types of injustices at different levels. I mean, what justice is in one situation may not be appropriate for, for the other. But when you're talking about, you know, big issues around public safety, uh, it would make sense to censor the people who are least safe, um, and most impacted, because when we do that, then we ensure safety for everyone, right? It's it's like the Bible says, the least of us, right? So if we're if we're looking at the needs of the least, then we're going to meet the needs of of folks who are more resourced just by default. It doesn't mean that anyone's experience is more valuable than the others, right? Like or or you know, everyone's experience is real and relevant. Um, and what it's requiring us to do in our survivor network is have real conversations about what these reforms mean. You know, in some instances, reforms could mean uh, a reduction in sentence for someone who committed a harm. In some instances, um, reforms could mean loss of enhancements and things that could result in longer sentencing for folks. But the question is, have those approaches delivered on safety? What mechanisms, you know, what's, what science, what data were we using to justify those approaches? And if we look back and we understand the voices that have kind of driven decisions around public safety, on, on policing, on tough on crime, what we learn is that a lot of those decisions have been made to protect the interests and protect individuals who are resourced folks who did not want to take additional loss. It didn't mean that they weren't harmed, but definitely different in terms of what they felt the solution would be because the solution, unfortunately, ends up being at the expense of people who are less resourced. And that's what we are are trying to help folks understand. But it's, it's not an easy discussion, you know, and I think that we have to give room for folks to have differences of opinions. We have to have a lot of truth and transparency which is difficult to do, like really help people understand what does this mean? Because what, what's happening right now is so much of this conversation around reform has been used to really exploit crime victims and use them kind of as a political football, unfortunately. Especially lately, right? I mean, especially yeah. in L.A., that seems like it's kind of a, yeah. a big moment in L.A. exactly with that. 
Yeah. Yeah. In L.A. and, you know, around other issues, too. I mean, there are very real, again, you know, very real concerns and very real challenges. You know, we have seen upticks in crime in some in some areas of the state. Um, we've seen a rise in violence against the API community. Uh, we've seen rise in homicide. So this it's true, right, that there are serious concerns that we have around public safety. But this rhetoric that criminal justice reform is responsible for what we see going on is wrong. Like it, it, it's, it can be proven like it, it's wrong. Uh, we have data, right? Like we, we have receipts, so to say. And so, you know, just really exploiting the harm that people have experienced, terrible, tragic losses, things that should have never happened, and saying that this happened to you because there are people out here that are saying that people should not be held accountable when they commit a crime is disgusting. It's disgusting. And especially because many of the voices that are driving that rhetoric are folks who are paid to protect and serve our communities. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what is the interest in here? What's the vested interest in this conversation? And what's actually happening is as this conversation grows, if you peel back the layers, it comes down to investment. What people are doing is trying to protect the investment into the systems that carry their jobs, that validate them in the roles that they're in. Um, it has very little to do with delivering justice, has very little to do um, with giving support to folks. And how do we know that? Because the investment's not there. And even in this conversation right now, you know, where folks are going back and forth about reform being at fault for the harm, there is no complimentary conversation about what we need to do to support victims beyond victims need police and law enforcement to uphold justice for them. There's no conversation about meeting their immediate needs, uh, you know, of people getting help with relocation or access to mental health or, you know, um, you know, funds to offset the cost from lost wages or protecting their housing. Like none of that is part of this conversation um, or the rhetoric that we hear. And so unfortunately, a, a victim who has lost a loved one or been, you know, been harmed personally may not even have the bandwidth, you know, to understand being a conversation around the details of what reform has and hasn't done. They just know they've been hurt, they've been harmed, and they didn't get help. And that these folks are supposed to be responsible for delivering that help and that justice. So it's um, it's complicated, but there's a lot of very black and white facts that we have to sit with in this moment that can help people have a better understanding of where to be in the conversation. We got to fight through the noise to get to that. You know, obviously in this work that you're doing, you're often asked to, you know, talk about some really painful moments in your life. You know, I grapple with that in these conversations because I'm I'm really aware of how, you know, the toll that it takes or how hard it can be for us to tell our stories. And I'm wondering if there's anything we could do to honor the needs of survivors or lessen the burden of telling those kinds of stories. You know, are there different ways of framing those questions? How could we be checking in with folks? Um, what what have you learned from your experience of working with victims and survivors? Hmm. So, oh, I wish I could quote uh, Dr. Butler because she, she just framed this so well. 
there are three ways or three kind of purposes for survivors sharing the story. And this kind of really changed the way, you know, we imagine ourselves to be trauma informed, but there's really no way you can be prepared, totally prepared for the impact of trauma when someone's recalling their experiences and sharing. I think it's important to make sure there's intent, you know, that people really being clear on what the intent is behind sharing their story, understanding their own boundaries and having that self-awareness. And for folks who facilitate spaces like this, just reiterating that, like really making sure that folks feel safe with it. One of my biggest challenges, just being very, very vulnerable and transparent with stepping into um, the first role that I I had uh, in the organization, which was state director of CSSJ, was that I would have to lead with my story. It gave me a lot of anxiety. You know, it was it was hard enough to still be processing and grieving the losses of my brothers. And then, you know, to be leading a statewide network of survivors and victims and to have to come in and lead with my own experience, I really had to do some work to figure out for myself a safe way to do that. I mean, there's so much power in in telling your own story and reclaiming your narrative that we definitely want to create more opportunities for folks to do that. But I think giving them the support you know, making sure that folks really do have a good self-care plan and they also understand boundaries and self-awareness is is really critical. And then what's the intent behind sharing your story? Having those clear intentions coming in definitely helps in being able to hold the space and be able to get it across to make change. Thank you. And I want to ask one more final one too, which is uh, maybe just a, a, a kind of broader context for that very question, you know, as, as we are stepping into this movement and following leaders like yourself, I was wondering if you had any advice for us or other people who are interested in getting involved in this kind of work. I consider you both to be leaders uh, in this movement. I mean, we're all stepping into this space with a lot of vulnerability, sharing very publicly what happened to us and to our families. And I think just knowing that it's it doesn't have to be perfect. I think that's one thing to keep reminding ourselves. I think the other is that, you know, there will be fallout. There will be, you know, things that won't be shared publicly, things that we have to deal with within our families. You know, I, and I'm, I'm saying this because I work on reform, you know, and I mentioned earlier that my own family is in a fight for justice and those conversations become very personal, you know, so having a lot of grace and compassion, self-compassion, and compassion for our, our loved ones and folks that may not be there yet, I think is really important. It's not our job necessarily to convince folks. I think our role is to empower folks. And in doing that, we you, you there's some conviction that comes with that. We empower folks to be vulnerable through what we do. And that really is the catalyst for everything else, like creating space for vulnerability. So just have self-compassion not taking on the responsibility of changing everyone's mind or getting them on into uh, alignment, you know, that that will happen on their own journey if it's meant. And, you know, we, we do the best that we can with navigating our own healing and in sharing it with folks along the way. That's my lesson learned. That's the advice that I can give. We're going to learn this together. <laughs> this one phrase you said, empowering folks to be vulnerable. That's, I find that so beautiful. 
Yeah. I imagine we're going to learn those lessons over and over and over again. <laughs> it's it's the one. It's the one. People underestimate, you know, vulnerability. It's it's the toughest thing to do. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a real delight. Uh, it's been a you. gift. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for just creating the space and welcoming me in. Again, I, I have so much respect and appreciation for your vulnerability and your leadership. And regardless of how you may see yourself in this movement, it's critical. Your voices and what you've um, been able to bring into this space is so valuable. So thank you. Because I know it's not easy. We're in this together and this has been a really amazing experience. And I hope that, you know, our discussion enlightens, helps, support somebody along the way. I think it will. I mean, it, at least it helps us right now. It's really awesome to be connected with you. Um, and we look forward to more. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A New Legacy. If you'd like to learn more about Tanish and support the amazing projects and organizations that she's leading, please visit our website at anewlegacy.com to learn more.